Welcome to Paint on Politics, a podcast where host Dr. Gregory Payne of Emerson College sits down with fellow experts to discuss the current state of politics, public opinion, and global affairs. In a world growing increasingly complex, communication and critical thinking is key. This only makes the Emerson motto, expression necessary to evolution, more true. Welcome to Paint on Politics. I'm Gregory Payne, the Chair of Communication Studies, the first communication department at the United States here at Emerson College. And I'm here with America's favorite pollster and one of the most accurate, and that would be Spencer Kimball of Emerson Polling. One I will say is every time I turn on the tube, when I talk to my Aunt Jean in Benton, Illinois, whether it's local, whether it's national, Emerson Polling is really everywhere. So Spencer, first of all, how do you keep your energy? And then tell me the road ahead. I keep hearing it's not just one or two polls, but many in the future. Well, thanks again for having me, Dr. Payne. And uh, it's really a op- great opportunity we've had here at Emerson College working with Nextar Media Group on uh, all of these polls that you keep seeing from South Dakota to Florida to New Hampshire. And so over the next about 10 days, we have another about 20 polls to conduct at the statewide level. Uh, We just put out our national poll last week, and then we'll wrap it up at the conference on November 4th in Washington. Well, with with regard to that conference, I I have to say, first of all, Emerson Polling has been such a strong supporter of the Center for Global Communication with Blind Karina. In that morning area, we're really going to highlight, we have, of course, Caddy Kay. Susan Del Percio has been very important on Emerson alum and getting Caddy to come. But can you tell us what you're going to be doing in that morning? Because we've got you, we've got Laura, and then we've got commentary by Elaine Carmack and Linda Peak-Shack. Sure. So in the morning session, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about pre-election polling. Uh, I get to work with uh, my colleague from American University, Dr. Joseph Campbell. Um, he wrote the book, Lost in a Gallup. So it's an interesting read for all of uh, those. Uh, it's kind of like the polling diary that you don't want to be in. And then um, we've been doing a study this year on the Hispanic vote and uh, on, uh, on a study called Unlocking the Hispanic Vote and looking at both registered and non-registered Hispanics in the United States. And we've got Dr. Laura Barberina and our uh, research uh, director, Isabel Holloway, going to talk about the findings from that six-state study, doing about 18 focus groups and seven, eight surveys. And then after that, we have a new panel about uh, Asian American studies, American Indian, um, taking a look at that group of voters and then we'll wrap that up with a 24 discussion with, uh, as you said, Elaine Kamarik and uh, Linda Peak-Shack looking at uh, the 2024 race and what's going to happen in the nominating contest. Because remember, when November 8th happens in a couple of weeks, everyone's attention is going to turn to November 5th, 2024. And there's going to be primary elections and nominating contests in about a year from after this midterm election. So quickly, you'll see a a pivot into the presidential election uh, coming out of the midterms. You know, one thing I'd like to point out is, of course, we're very excited uh, to have Bob Woodward, a legendary journalist who's going to be talking about his new book, which I understand Donald Trump says is really his book. Uh, Woodward's going to be there on November 4th. Uh, And throughout the day, for those, of course, the dinner has sold out quickly. But uh, in terms of throughout the day, you could come and take on these many panels. Spencer, from your perspective, as someone who studied poll, you're really revolutionizing methodology. What are you seeing in these last weeks or so in terms of the midterms? 
Well, what we've seen over the last couple of weeks in the United States is a tightening of a lot of these races towards the Republican candidates. And even nationally, we've seen Joe Biden really worked hard this summer to get his favorability, his approval rating back up into the mid 40s. But it looks like in the last couple of weeks, that number has dropped back into the low 40s, high 30s. Uh, and that's that's a problem for the Democrats, obviously, going into the midterms. Even when we've had popular presidents in the midterms like Barack Obama in 2010, they still lose seats. And so having an unpopular incumbent president is going to be difficult for some of these other races that we're looking at. Yeah, tonight, I know we've got uh, the debate uh, in Pennsylvania. We've had some other debates. We've got Arizona, where one of the candidates refuses to debate. How many people do you think, Spencer, when they're listening to these debates, do you think debates really matter or do you think people have made up their mind? Well, in a lot of places, people have already voted. So they have made up their mind. They've already cast their vote. So the debate has little impact, obviously, in that context. But overall, I still find that the debate creates competency within the candidates. I think it creates momentum. It creates campaign ads. And I think it's important to debate. Uh, If you remember when Trump missed or skipped the Iowa debate in 2016, or when Reagan skipped the Iowa debate in in, in 1980, they both ended up losing Iowa. And so I think voters want to see the candidates. I think Katie Hobbs skipping the debate out in Arizona, the Democrat, is a mistake in that governor's race because voters, I think, will penalize you for not debating and maybe not reward you for debating, but penalize you for not debating. So it's important that you get out and defend your message as well. So what I think we've seen around the country is that these debates have humanized a lot of the candidates, and that's why you've seen a tightening of the race. It's different from the mediated reality that people have seen on television, the ads, uh, internet, uh, on computers. This is one-on-one. You have to make those arguments and defend them in front of the other person. I think uh, gives voters a clear indication of what they're voting for. You know, Spencer, one of the areas I like to look at in campaigns is political advertising. And just want to ask you in terms of messaging, because many people have been critical of the Democrats not getting the message out about uh, some of the aspects of prescription drug care, hearing aids, a lot of uh, areas that would benefit people. Uh, When I was watching you know, the World Series, uh, well, not the World Series, but the playoffs, it seemed like every other ad, it was this kind of fear ad of people uh, where crime was overtaking America. Where have the Democrats been in placement of these ads as well as getting the positive message out? Because after watching those ads, I was even afraid to go out of my condo. Well, if you want to see a positive ad, you can go to Ohio. Tim Ryan is running some pretty positive ads um, about people getting along. It's him and his wife talking about how they argue. And then even though that they argue, they're still married. So it shows that, you know, we can agree to disagree, but then move forward. Uh, We'll see how effective that is in Ohio. He's in a tough race against J.D. Vance for that Senate seat. Of course, if you just look next door to Pennsylvania, you got the Oz ads where he's killing 300 dogs. Um, And so now you've got that type of attack going on. And it'll be interesting to see how Oz defends that, obviously, during the debates tonight. But that's what's happening around the country. Uh, Generally, it's more like the attack uh, that we're seeing in Pennsylvania, not so much of the fluff, you know, the niceness that we're seeing out of Ohio. But we'll obviously in the next uh, two weeks, and especially in that last 72 hours, I expect candidates to kind of flip the script and go more positive. But at this point, they're going to do more contrast ads in this last week leading up to the election. Spencer, you and I have talked a little bit about uh, what's going on out in the uh, state of Nevada. Of course, we have people saying, how do you pronounce it, et cetera. Uh, Paul Axalt is coming, of course, uh, with a family that has a very, very strong reputation 
Uh, you had Harry Reid, of course, having his machine. I know when you said, uh, and we've talked before, you said that is one to really watch in terms of controlling the Senate. Where do you see that at, as we speak today? Uh, I think you you misput uh, Adam Laxalt with his old man, Paul. So big Paul. Yeah, yeah Paul, uh, he's I retired know Paul is with us. So. <laughs> Adam is the one running, uh, but uh, Nevada is going to be one of those swing states. And those, I do apologize for my mispronunciation. Remember, I'm a numbers guy, not a words guy. So the numbers are telling me that we've got a tight race in the silver state, both in the Senate and in the governor's race. But then you also have four congressional races, particularly in that first district where the Democrats kind of weaken their incumbent seat to try to strengthen the third and fourth districts for themselves. Um, we'll have to see if that gamble plays off or if the Republicans are able to run the table and pick up a couple of congressional seats out in Nevada. Now, when you're talking about mediated reality, Spencer, you and I were talking yesterday, and I told you that I had seen something, I think it was on Fox or maybe it was MSNBC or CNN, that indicated that the uh, GOP senatorial group had pulled out of New Hampshire. And I kept saying to myself, they're pulling out of New Hampshire, but yet the Emerson poll shows it tightening. Uh, so what you're telling me is don't believe everything you hear on TV? Shockingly, uh, be careful of what you read and, and careful of what you see. There's always going to be deception. I mean, if we watched, let's just say, the Patriots game last night, there was a question of who was going to be the starting quarterback. And then during the game, they switched quarterbacks. So here in politics, there's going to be even more deception. So to me, if one side tells me that they have no chance, it raises an eyebrow and suggests they have a better, better chance than not uh, of taking that. So perhaps lowering expectations was the goal of the Republicans there. But as you mentioned, we just have a new poll out of New Hampshire, and that race is down to three points. We had that at 11 points for Maggie Hassan, expecting it to tighten to maybe six or seven. But now that it's down to three, we're within the polls margin of error. And that's going to be a race that we're going to have to keep an eye on for the next two weeks. Okay, that's quite a surprise. But even when we look at New York, what we've seen is the tightening of the gubernatorial race. What, what do you see happening there? Yeah, so in New York, we've had that race at 14, 15 points all summer. And now we're back in the field. We'll have our new numbers out on Friday on PIX11 uh, this Friday. And what we're seeing is, again, a tightening of that race. Uh, do we see it tight enough that the Republicans can take it? You'll have to find out Friday on Fix 11, but it is definitely tightening back into uh, the single digits. All right. I know last or a couple of days ago, we had uh, Chris and uh, DeSantis, uh, of course, debating down in, in Florida. Uh, one question that Chris asked DeSantis is, would he pledge that he would f actually serve out a gubernatorial term? Transition is how strong do you think DeSantis is as a potential opponent of Donald Trump in 2024? Well, we've got so many inside politics to talk about here. So yes, DeSantis is looking to run up his score and win by double digits. And by winning by double digits, he's looking that as a launching pad to a presidential potential presidential run in 2024. Of course, if he won by five, six points, that's what we have Rubio at in the Senate race. That's not such a, a you know a sign that you know there's been a rally around. Uh, the governor, and they're going to push him off. Now, DeSantis did benefit, it looks like, from the hurricane. There was a rally around, and his approval rating actually went up about 10 points based on his response to the hurricane. But if we take a look at states like Georgia and Pennsylvania 
Arizona, and even Nevada, you got a lot of Trump candidates, Ohio. Um, and so now Trump is sort of on the ballot in those states, because if those Republican candidates were to win, Trump can say, look, those were my horses and they won. But if his horses lose, now there could be a rumor rumbling within the party. Hey, he put up these horses. They lost. We don't have control of the Senate. And now there's room for uh, DeSantis. But without that, I think DeSantis is still on the sideline until 28. Okay, one question. We've talked a little bit about uh, the strength of DeSantis and the fact that Chris, uh, as many people have said, have, has really been running for office throughout his entire life, successful, but then not so successful lately. What does that do to Val Demings in terms of her opportunities to knock off Marco Rubio? Well, Demings was pretty aggressive in that debate with Rubio. I thought she had some pretty good one-liners, but systematically, she's in a tough place down in Florida. Uh, She's coming out of the Orlando area, and she should be able to pull a pretty strong Hispanic vote. But that uh, Cuban vote, Hispanic Cuban vote down in southern Florida has really galvanized with the Republicans. We see it in like the the lower congressional districts that the Republicans picked up back in 2020, and they seems to crystallized a little bit down there. So uh, she's got some some room to make within that Hispanic community. I'm not sure she's going to be able to do that. Um, she is a strong candidate, obviously stronger than Chris, according to the numbers, but probably uh, a bit of a long shot um, to be able to pull off this upset uh, in this political environment. Well, Spencer, I know that there are people knocking on the door because you are a man in demand. And I would like to say thank you for tuning in. What we ask people to do is, once again, uh, continue, because uh, what I'll do is try to snag Spencer as much as I can. But he's, a, as I said, the man on demand. We would like to invite you to please uh, uh, think about joining the panels during the day at the Watergate. Uh, as I said, the dinner and the breakfast is sold out, but you can come in and hear from some of the best talking about not only polling, but also the Ukraine war, public diplomacy, some of the issues in health communication, and possibly uh, some insights uh, in terms of Charles Steinberg and Larry Lacchino in terms of another city they're going to transform through stadium diplomacy. So, Spencer, thank you very much, and I do want to congratulate you, too. Many people think Spencer only does electoral polling, but he's been involved with Scott Ratson and the dean at Cooney, He's also been involved in various other advocacy groups and health in other areas. And I think one recognition is that the British embassy is going to be recognizing Emerson polling at a special uh, invitation-only pre-summit reception on November the 3rd. So, Spencer, I know you, and I've, and I've seen you from the time when you first walked in and had a dream, and I think that this dream is becoming a reality All I can say is kudos and congratulations as the trajectory is onward and upward. Well, thank you very much. And hopefully those words are properly uh, spoken. Take care. We'll see you once again. Thank you for joining us on Pain on Politics with Spencer Kimball.